Our scripture reading for today is Luke chapter 24, verse 13 to 35. Listen now to the word of the Lord. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that, he, that, even, that had even seen an, a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he was we're going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were staying, who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you. Thank you. Welcome. This is now the third Sunday of the Easter season, and we continue to look at those who encountered the resurrected Jesus. Last Sunday, Mary Magdalene, who was the first to see the risen Christ, declared, I have seen the Lord. Today, we'll consider two disciples who will testify, the Lord has risen indeed. Please pray with me. Lord, we thank you again for this time that we have together to hear your word and to see one another. Help us in this time to hear the word that you have for us. And in that hearing, help us to be strengthened, to be encouraged, and to obey. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. The story you just heard should be familiar to many of you. It begins with two disciples leaving Jerusalem to a nearby village called Emmaus. The name of one of the disciples is Cleopas. The name of the other 
is unknown. That Luke only mentions the name of one of the disciples and not the other has intrigued the church for a long time. It may be that it's just a simple case that the disciple's name has been forgotten as most of Jesus's followers are also unnamed and unknown. For example, Luke 10 tells us that in addition to the 12 disciples whose names we do know, Jesus also appointed 72 others whose names we don't know. Maybe Cleopas and his companion were among this group of unknown 72 disciples. Others, however, have suggested that Luke may have left out the name deliberately for storytelling purposes. Having an unnamed disciple walking along with Cleopas allows us to insert ourselves into the narrative. The blank canvas of the identity of this unnamed disciple is an invitation to imagine ourselves making that journey of discovery with Cleopas and Jesus. Whether the disciple's name is simply unknown or whether Luke has made a deliberate literary decision are both reasonable possibilities. I've mentioned this before, but about a decade ago, I was reading this passage with my daughter and we had a little discussion about it. That's what we do when your dad's a pastor. She was about 10 or 11 at the time. And I asked her who she thought the other disciple might be. And she surprised me by telling me that she thought that it was Cleopas's wife. When I asked her why, she said that the Bible hardly ever tells you the women's names because they were patriarchal in those days. She had just learned that word in school that week. Well, she wasn't wrong. At least in some recent art, we can see the acknowledgement of the possibility that the two disciples might have been a married couple. Today, a number of scholars also believe that the unnamed disciple may have been Cleopas's wife and that her name was Mary. According to the Gospel of John, during Jesus's crucifixion, we are told that standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. Mary, the wife of Clopas, was among the small band of faithful women who stood nearby the cross. Now, the Gospel of John says <clears throat> Mary was the wife of Clopas, whereas in our reading in Luke, the name is Cleopas. It's possible that these are two different people, but the identification of Clopas and Cleopas as the same person is well supported in church tradition dating back to the second century. In a world where they had multiple languages spoken and translated back and forth, it was not uncommon for there to be spelling variations. Even today in the 21st century, many of you have probably experienced this with the misspelling and the mispronunciation of your own names by others in this country. Furthermore, in the Gospel of Luke, the pairing of men and women as dual witnesses or as dual illustrations is common. In the birth narratives, Luke tells us about both 
Zechariah and Elizabeth, both about Simeon and Anna. Jesus himself references both the widow of Zarephath and Naaman the Syrian as outsiders who received blessing, and both the queen of the south and the men of Nineveh as those who will rise up in judgment. So it would not be unusual for Luke to have another gendered pair without explicitly saying so. Certainly, we know that many women also follow Jesus, and we have to assume that there were at least some married couples and families among those who followed Jesus. We're told, for example, that on Easter Sunday, the 11 disciples in Jerusalem were with their companions. And it's reasonable to think that at least some of them must have been their wives and sisters and families. I think it also makes ordinary sense that after the Passover and the Sabbath, a couple would travel back to their home at Emmaus or perhaps that stopping en route to their home elsewhere. And along the way, they're just having an intimate and intense conversation. In any case, I hope knowing this possibility will help you to better imagine yourself in the story, whoever you are. Now, as the two disciples are talking and walking in their grief and disappointment over what happened on Good Friday, they're accosted by someone whom they fail to recognize. I was thinking that if this were to happen today, they might not have recognized Jesus because he would be wearing a mask and be socially distanced. My wife would also tell you that if I had been walking with Cleopas, I would definitely not have recognized Jesus. She would tell you that when it comes to seeing or finding anything, I am just about the worst. For example, she would tell me to go get some uh, dried noodles from the pantry. She will even tell me that it's on the third shelf from the bottom toward the back. And I will dutifully go and look and look and look some more. I might even pull out some of the other stuff in there to make a more careful search. Then I will report back to her, it's not there. She will then look at me absolutely dumbfounded go to the third shelf from the bottom of the pantry, and in what seems like a miracle to me, find it exactly where she said it would be. I will, of course, insist that it was not there a minute ago. And she will say something like, what, did you expect it to jump out and bite you? I don't have an explanation why I can't see. I try to see, I really do. And it's not just me, right? In the case of Cleopas and Mary, they at least had a good excuse. They don't recognize Jesus because their eyes were kept from recognizing him. The passive voice suggests that someone was keeping them from recognizing him. It wasn't just their grief or fear or anything else. Now, it's not clear why Jesus didn't simply reveal himself to them immediately and instead asks, what are you guys talking about? And they stood still looking sad. Then Cleopas begins to reproach the stranger and his question. If this were one of my kids, he would have said, is this guy for real? He can't believe 
that this stranger doesn't know about what's happened? How can you not know about Jesus and the crucifixion and the rumors of the resurrection? But actually, if this were an ordinary visitor or a stranger to Jerusalem, it would be easy not to know about Jesus. The Romans routinely crucified criminals. Jesus of Nazareth would have been just one more rebel. It might matter a great deal to Cleopas and the other disciples, but as far as world news goes, it's unremarkable. It would not have made the cover of the local newspapers. It would not have shown up in their news feeds. So Jesus then rebukes them for their foolishness, that is, for their mindlessness, and for the slowness of their hearts, and leads them in a Bible study about himself. I mean, I've been to a lot of good Bible studies, but that's one I really wish I could have attended. I suppose Jesus might have pointed out a number or any number of passages that point toward him, such as Deuteronomy 18. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Or Isaiah 7, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Or Zechariah 12, and I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. More fundamentally, Jesus reinterprets the scriptures in light of himself. As Joel Green writes in his commentary on Luke, what has happened with Jesus can be understood only in light of the scriptures. Yet the scriptures themselves can be understood only in the light of what has happened with Jesus. These two are mutually informing. As Jesus told his disciples earlier, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. For if you believed Moses, you would have believed me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Jesus' life, death, and resurrection only makes sense in light of the scriptures before him. And the scriptures only make sense in light of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Cleopas and Mary will reflect later that their hearts were burning during this time. Their very being was starting to be engulfed with a new understanding of the scriptures. They were so enthralled by it that when they arrive at their destination for the night and Jesus looks like he's going to keep moving on, they practically insist that Jesus stay with them. And then even though Jesus is the guest, he acts as the host and reminiscent of what he did in the feeding of the 5,000 and at the Last Supper, he takes the bread, blesses it, breaks it, and gives it to Cleopas and Mary. And it's in that moment that their eyes were finally opened and they recognized Jesus, who also in that moment of recognition disappears. The two disciples, overcome with astonishment and joy, run back in the middle of the night, back 
to Jerusalem, another seven miles to complete a half marathon on Easter Sunday so that they can declare that the Lord has risen indeed. As I was working through this passage this week, I couldn't help but be struck once again by the phrase in verse 21. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. We had hoped. Cleopas, Mary, and all the other disciples had hoped that Jesus would be the one. Had hoped. Past tense. They thought he would be the one to overthrow Rome and establish God's kingdom. They thought that Jesus would make Israel great again. But his shameful death on the cross utterly dashed all their hopes. N.T. Wright says this, It is not simply that Jesus' followers knew from Deuteronomy that a crucified person was under God's curse. Nor was it simply that they had not yet worked out a theology of Jesus' atoning death. The crucifixion already had for them a perfectly clear theological as well as political meaning. It meant that the exile was still continuing, that God had not forgiven Israel's sins, and that pagans were still ruling the world. This is why Cleopas and Mary are on their way to Emmaus away from Jerusalem, because Jerusalem represents all their hopes and dreams that have now been dashed. I don't think we can really fault them for wanting to get away. The beginning of Malcolm Guite's poem, Emmaus II, describes their feelings well. We thought that everything was lost and gone. Disaster on disaster overtook us. The night we left our Jesus all alone, and we were scattered and our faith forsook us. But oh, that foul Friday proved far worse. For we had hope that he had been the one, till crucifixion proved he was a curse. And on the cross, our hopes were all undone. When all your hopes are undone, what do you do? Where do you go? You know that this story is usually referred to as the road to Emmaus. We are told that the village of Emmaus is about seven miles from Jerusalem, but to date there has been no agreement on where this village is. Outside of this mention in Luke, there is no other mention in the Bible, nor in any outside sources. What we do know, however, is that the word Emmaus means hot springs, hot springs. It conjures up for me images of a resort village or a spa or a sauna. Perhaps we might imagine a couple disappointed and crushed by the events of Good Friday, just trying to get away to retreat to a place to relax and soak in some hot waters. Frederick Beekner says this in The Magnificent Defeat, that Emmaus is where we go or what we do in order to escape the problems and the pains of the world. It could be turning to whatever bad habits or addictions that give us some relief, perhaps stress eating a bag of Doritos, 
hanging out at a local bar, mindlessly surfing the internet, binge shopping, or taking out your anger on someone. He writes that Emmaus may even be going to church on Sunday. Emmaus is whatever we do or wherever we go to make ourselves forget that the world holds nothing sacred, that even the wisest and bravest and loveliest decay and die, that even the noble ideas that people have, ideas about love and freedom and justice, have always in time been twisted out of shape by selfish people for selfish ends. Where do you go when all you have hoped for has been twisted out of shape? We had hoped. Doesn't that phrase capture so much of what we have experienced in this past year? We had hoped that the pandemic would be over by now. We had hoped that remote learning wouldn't be so bad. We had hoped that the relationship might be mended. We had hoped that the cancer would go into remission. We had hoped that she would be with us a little longer. We had hoped that he would make better decisions. We had hoped that she wouldn't lose that job. We had hoped that he could have gotten that promotion. We had hoped that she'd get accepted into her dream school. We had hoped that there would be less violence and more understanding, love, and unity. We had hoped that he would redeem Israel. We had hoped you can fill in your own blanks. It's hard to lose hope. But what this story teaches me is that Jesus allows us to grieve as he walks beside us incognito. As difficult as it is when people don't live up to our hopes and expectations, when we ourselves disappoint the hopes of others, perhaps we are being given an opportunity to re-examine and perhaps to reorient our hopes. Instead of going to Emmaus or having stopped by at Emmaus, we can return to Jerusalem, to the places and peoples where we have lost hope with a new message. The Lord has risen indeed. Because that changes everything. Again, this is not to dismiss your pain or to diminish your suffering in any way. But perhaps, by grace, your heart might be opened in such moments to receive the future that God has prepared for you and the world. There is a hope and a future greater than what we might have imagined for ourselves. For Cleopas and Mary, their misplaced hope that Jesus would redeem Israel would be fulfilled, but not in the way that they had imagined, and in a far deeper way, not only for Israel, but for the whole world. This hope comes from outside of us. It is not the result of our own strengths, nor of our own making. This hope, as Cleopas and Mary discovered, lies in grace. 
Just as their eyes had been earlier kept from recognizing Jesus, so now in the breaking of the bread, their eyes had been opened and they recognized the presence of Jesus in their midst. Again, we have the passive verb implying that their eyes were opened by someone. They were opened by someone. It is not something they willed for themselves. It may be that in the breaking of the bread, they recalled the feeding of the 5,000, or perhaps they saw his nail-pierced hands as he broke the bread. Earlier they saw, but they did not see. Now, as their eyes are opened by grace, they are able to see and recognize the presence of Christ. This grace came to them, not in a moment of great faith, but when they were grieving, when they weren't even looking for Jesus, when they were debating with one another, when they were doubting, when their hopes had been broken. It came when they were willing to share with one another, when they were willing to extend hospitality to a stranger, when they shared a meal. If any of that describes you, or any of those things are things that you can do, you can find hope. Earl Ellis, in his commentary on Luke, points out that the meal in Emmaus is the eighth meal scene in the Gospel of Luke. The Last Supper was the seventh, the end of the first week, the end of the first creation. The eighth meal and Easter is the start of the new creation. God's new world has come. Behold, he's making all things new. He has risen indeed. It's a moment we'd like to savor. A moment that we'd like to last forever. To be physically present with Christ. But it doesn't last Cleopas and Mary would have wanted to sit at the dinner table with Jesus much longer, but Jesus doesn't stay. In that moment of recognition, he disappears. R. Alan Culpepper reminds us that God's presence is always elusive, fleeting, dancing at the edge of our awareness and perception. If we are honest, we must confess that it is never constant, steady, or predictable. God's faithful perceive God's presence in fleeting moments, and then the mundane closes in again. It may be just a fleeting glimpse, but it is those moments that sustain us with renewed hope. You have all had those moments, and we talk about them, these glimpses, of Easter. And so I would invite you to share those moments with one another. Run to one another if you have to and testify. The Lord has risen indeed. There is a greater hope than the hopes that we have lost because the Lord has risen. O foolish, foolish heart, why do you grieve? Here is good news and comfort to your soul. Open your mind to scripture and believe. He bore the curse for you 
to make you whole. The living God was numbered with the dead that he might bring you life in broken bread. The Lord has risen indeed. Thanks be to God. Please pray with me. Lord Jesus, stay with us just for a moment. Be our companion on the way, even if we do not recognize you. Rekindle our hearts and reawaken hope that we may know you as you are revealed in the scriptures and in the breaking of the bread. We ask that you be visible to all those who call your name in desperation and grief and when they have lost hope. Grant us grace. Help us for the sake of your love. We pray these things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, the risen Lord, who taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen.